Hi, I'm Chief Mike Force, and you're listening to WhatCopsWatch.com on the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. They all wear uniforms. They're honored to wear the badge. They defend life and property and carry guns. While they're often called superheroes, they, in the end, are humans, just like you and I. This is WhatCopsWatch.com. I'm Captain Chris DiGiuseppe. I'm an author, a screenwriter, and I've been in law enforcement for over 20 years. I'm Mike Wilkerson, the media generator with thousands of entertainment podcast reviews across a decade plus, loaded and ready for bear. The television programming is out there. The feature films are bigger, more action-packed than ever, and out there too. It's a growing world of media, both on and offline, but what do cops watch? Get ready to cross the yellow podcast tape and learn more about the thin blue line. It's time for another episode of WhatCopsWatch.com. Back in the 1980s, movies were different. They were hard, and many of them rated R. One of the most heralded movies of 1987 was about a police officer at the end of his career, a family man, and another cop that was on the ragged edge, one that needed to be registered as a lethal weapon. Looking back now almost 30 years on the cusp of a new Fox-based television show, it's time to jump perspective across actors' careers, across hosts' perspectives, and across the bridge to a new Fox-based television series of the same name. It's time for the Lethal Weapon Perspective Review, a detailed, always educational review of 1987's Lethal Weapon. Starring Mel Gibson and Danny Glover, directed by Richard Donner here on WhatCopsWatch.com on the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Greetings, everybody. I'm Mike Wilkerson, one of your hosts. And I'm Chris DiGiuseppe, your other host. What a very special perspective review. And what I didn't mention inside of the intro here is this is one of your favorite films, is it not, Chris? It is. It is. It was one of my favorite films when it came out and uh, still one of my favorite films. Now, in, the, in terms of policery, where were you in 1987? 1987, I was a year out of high school. So basically, I was nowhere. Okay. So, <laughs> Had you had any inklings of law enforcement back then? Not really. No. Nothing uh, at all? No. Let's see. 1987, I was probably 19 years old okay. and working at a geological testing uh, company and you know <laughs> wow. trying to find the next job I went to Southeast Missouri State University for 6 months after high school graduation mm -hmm. didn't really know if I wanted to go to college but I went down there and then came back after 6 months dropped out of college you know how it goes went back to community college 6 mm -hmm. months after that mm -hmm. I didn't know where I was going so it wasn't until uh, I was about 23 years old when I got onto the law enforcement path. Very interesting. And I think what I, it's why I've always loved participating in whatcopswatch.com is the perspective you're going to bring as a now 25 year law enforcement yes. veteran right. into a, the perspective of a gentleman that also had almost 25 years of police experience inside of this as Correct. Danny Glover's character does. So it's going to be very special. A quick little bit of housekeeping. The top 10 Police Vehicles of Television and Movie History. 
I wanted all of you to make sure you go listen to this other episode that both Chris and I did, along with Two Guys Talking Cars co-host Ron Ryling. It really is a special episode that's going to talk about many of the things that we're going to talk about inside of this review, hearkening back to television movies of that era. Lots and lots of great detail, and I know Chris had a bunch of fun reviewing those. Absolutely. Those classic police vehicles bringing back the uh, memories of those classic shows. It was great. Yeah. The most prolific firearms of television and movie history. Probably still my overall favorite episode we've done, Chris, that I want to make sure everybody goes and checks out after they listen to this review, obviously, are the most prolific firearms of television and movie history. Volume 1 with you and I and Ultimate Defense owner Paul Bastine, who sits down with us and talks about the most prolific firearms of television and movie history. It's a great list, which you can watch right now over at whatcopswatch.com. We'll also link to it in the show notes for this review. That one is probably my favorite episode that we've done to date. Absolutely. The, the technical detail, the movies and television series that we mentioned, it all, I, my mouth begins to water when I start thinking about it all right now. The epic signature weapons that everyone knows mm-hmm. and relates mm-hmm. to uh, to your favorite characters within these police-related uh, Yeah, and, and, all, and, and all the TV tech shows. details from, again, Paul Bastine from yes. Ultimate Defense Firing Range and Training, Training Center. Center. Uh, it, it's spectacular stuff, and it's also something you can't get anywhere else. Make sure you check it out over at whatcopswatch.com. All right, so time to put on your semi-brown suit. I'll put on my red and black checkered jacket. We'll both head into the perspective review of Lethal Weapon, 1987, directed by Richard Donner. Register you as a lethal podcaster. The hype, Chris. What do you remember for hype in this? Uh, that you weren't into law enforcement at all. Was this just something you and the you and the friends went to go see in the theater, or what was the story there? It was um, and it was an action movie. <laughs> and back oh, yeah. then, action movies were big, and it Huge. had a lot of action in it. Huge, yeah. And yeah. that's why it came together for me, mm-hmm. and that's why I remember it so prolifically, mm-hmm. and not just remember it. I've watched it. Over and over yeah. and over again. And yeah. for a movie to get my attention, for me to like it that much to where I've watched it so many times, it's got to be good. Yeah, not surprisingly, this is yet another one of those movies when if it's on on a television where you're walking by a room, you're plopping down to watch the rest of it. Right. And not so strangely, a lot of the perspective reviews that we do inside of Two Guys Talking are that. It's just, it's a, it's a, it's a sweet spot of nostalgia and allows you to go back to stuff that you want to sit and watch and learn more about, which is what you're going to do here. Hype for me inside this movie, I can remember vividly that my best friend back at the time, his name is Jeff Weston. Mm-hmm. And I were sitting in the recently new Mega Six Theater. Mm-hmm. It was the the largest local theater complex that you could go to and watch a movie. You got to be kidding me! Really. Unheard of, right? It it was tremendous. It was about three and a half minutes from his house, so it was no problem at mm-hmm. all. We spent the day there. It was during the summer mm-hmm. when we went and saw this. You lied about being eighteen years old trying to get into the uh, show, right? Because you guys were what seventeen, maybe? Uh, or were yeah. You- yeah. Oh, yeah. He was actually 18. I don't, okay. Nobody checked back. Then. Nobody checks. Nobody checked. I don't think they checked today. I think people are they lying don't. about it. Yeah. That's right. Uh, anyway, it, it was great. Had a giant, huge $24 drink in one hand <laughs> right. and, you know, right. some, some jujubes in the other one. Right. So, no, it, it was spectacular. And we were ready for this because it was a giant action film featuring right. Mel Gibson. Mel Gibson, right. So, it, it was giant. I'm getting too old for this podcasting. The money. 
Ah, one of my favorite pieces of every perspective review, where we figure out exactly how much money this movie's made, not just back then, but to date. Chris, right. do you have any idea at all what this movie's made? I'll take a guess, but I have no idea. Okay. I would, I'm and, just and for gonna... those that are curious, we are talking about from then to now. Then to now. Mm-hmm. I would um, guess... And I've got two numbers. First is domestic. Domestically, uh, I would say $120 million. $120 million. Okay. Uh, way over. Is it? It is way over. How about foreign? Any idea? Foreign. Uh, are you talking about foreign specifically or foreign everything? Specifically. Yeah. Foreign specifically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fifty million. Okay, that that's actually closer. So the money intake for this for domestic was sixty-five million okay. to date. So that's still a lot of money, especially from then to now. Sure. The foreign intake for this film fifty-five million dollars. That's so, interesting. A very interesting number, and again, you you have to remember the numbers back then compared to what happens now inside of movies, right? Especially for giant summer blockbusters featuring giant talent, you're going to see one hundred twenty million. On the first weekend. Right. And that's why I was guessing high. Mm -hmm. Trying to go back to 1987 and remember what movies typically brought in. It probably wasn't anywhere near that. And a question to throw out to you. Mm -hmm. Does the new TV series cause people to go back and watch this? Do they bring in more? Do they go to buy the DVD or they bring in more? I I, I can't imagine that it won't. There there are now, you can walk into any store and you can buy the pack of four feature films now together Mm -hmm. on one either Blu-ray or DVD set. Mm -hmm. And you've got them all in your hand so that you're ready to see whatever it was versus what you're going to have with the television series. I I don't remember if the television series has been picked up for a a whole season, Mm -hmm. but it's probably got its first initial 13 episodes under its belt. And I think that they're probably going to see what happens in September of this year, 2016, to see what happens with the series, to see whether or not it'll get another uh, another add-on set inside of that. We'll we'll see what happens. Good. Um, But it's a a ton of money. It's yet another corn combine of cash Mm -hmm. that happens inside of the perspective review of Lethal Weapon, 1987. I've even got a podcast with a hollow point in the top to do the job right. The Good. This is a really, really good movie. And yes. it is, it's not accidental. There's so much good going on inside of this film. Right. A Christmas movie? I affiliated it with Christmas oh, because that's, that, that was the it's, setting that it was in. Yeah, this and Die Hard both bookmark the movie at the front end and the back end with right. Christmas songs. Your Christmas action movie. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's a family movie. There, it was rated R. There was There's some things in there that, there's all kinds of things that, that you, can't, talk about, you yeah. can't have your kids watch, but yeah. it was a Christmas setting. Yeah. They had the Christmas tree in the background. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They uh, they used that setting, and I think that they they roped in the uh, the family atmosphere through that setting. Well, I think some of the too, family atmosphere associated with the character. Yeah, I mean, I think that we're gonna we're gonna dig deep on a couple of bullet points in regard to that. What I always remember about this movie is that beginning scene with the Christmas stuff, mm-hmm. and then of course the fight at the end, where not only do they have the song that ends out the the whole movie, mm-hmm. but you've got the fighting and slamming into Christmas tree and the at lights, the end, at the end too. right? Yeah. Yeah, Correct. Yeah. yeah, so it's it's all over the place inside of this uh, this movie and is definitively associated with Christmas for me, as is Die Hard, right. which is another perspective review you can listen to right now over at twoguystalking.com forward slash Die Hard. Yet another one of my favorite perspective reviews because all of these movies that came out in that middle 80s nest mm-hmm. are just super iconic. Mm-hmm. They, they have so much gravitas and they're perfect perspective review movies. The glorious Amanda Hunsaker. From a father's perspective, mm-hmm. 
I remember Amanda Hunsaker when I saw her when I was 17 years old when I first saw this movie. And wow, glorious, young, blonde, California girl. That's why it was rated R and you weren't supposed to get into the movie. But see, I was 19 and yeah. I, you know, so anyway, now I'm a cop, you know, so I don't break the rules, right? Most of the time. Most of the time, right, right. right. yeah. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. And, you know, it, it takes it, it – it's funny, too, watching it back then and watching it now. And you're right. You're 17, 19 years old. Watching it now, now that I am older, that I am a father, yeah. and I can relate. And you know, as you go daughters. on, And I have daughters, and, and so do you. Yes. And going mm-hmm. on in that film, really, really uh, a different emotion. Totally. You know, when you're Completely. talking about your, you know, your kids, and you see this father whose whose daughter's been murdered, and they're caught up in this plot. It it give, it puts a different perspective on it, I think. Yeah, using the words "caught up" is really well said inside of this because. Especially the second and third scene that you get, the scene in the bank, but then also the scene where Correct. Hunsaker dies. Right. Uh, they're, they have so much heft. Right. And it's another piece of the compelling writing that we absolutely are going to just really, really prop up inside of this perspective review. Right. But I wanted to make sure that we mention the perspective of what we saw back then and now. now. I, I have a I have a very, very blonde, very, very gorgeous daughter who is now 13 Right. And, you know, I, I can only imagine that in between three and five years, she'll be in exactly the same position that this young girl was in. And or she will never be inside this position. Right. But that she could be is but, it, it has super, super gravity. But emotional, emotionally, yeah. it as a parent, it I can now look at that and say, you know, yeah. like you were saying, you know, wow, I, you know, hope my hope my kids never never go down the wrong path and such even though this is a fictional movie mm-hmm. it still tugs at the parental heartstrings where somebody has done something to your child and you want vindication yeah yeah the other thing too is that it's not corny no how many movies or television series have all of you been sitting in front of and they'll bring in the father figure mm-hmm. and then they'll have some very small overture of music and then they'll insert the colloquial because parent is feeling insert whatever the parent is feeling. You don't have any of that here. It's right. all very, very heartfelt. It's real. Right. And uh, we're definitely going to talk about real versus what we're actually seeing, but also how many of the things that you see are real because of what you're seeing. I, I, the dynamic inside of the movie is just very well done that way. Agreed. What's it like to be 50? I don't know yet. I'm two years away. Well, and I'm quite a few number. I'm 46 as we record this podcast. Mm-hmm. And traditionally, we don't we don't put how much time or how old we are inside of the perspective reviews. But I thought this one was terribly appropriate. One, because you are almost 50. Almost 50. And I am four years departed from that. So I, it's something we absolutely have to talk about, especially with the with the beginning of this film and the bathtub scene. Yeah, the beginning. That was one of the things that I commented on at the beginning of the film, with the family coming into the bathroom and bringing the birthday cake. Now I don't know about you, Mike, but not so much. That wouldn't. Every that year. wouldn't be so. Yeah, is that happen every, every year? year I make sure you? that I have no bubble bath as yeah. well, so it can oh, have a really oh, interesting. Okay, well, yeah. Happy birthday to me, song. N- not yeah. so much. Now, good comic relief <laughs> kind of sets the tone. I think it was good characterization yes. to show that that is a family unit there and they're close and so forth. But realistically. Not happening. Not happening in in <laughs> my house. No, not really. <laughs> Going back to the fifty thing, though, being fifty years old, being fifty years old, and being 
a career police officer hit home with me also. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, Glover is at the end of his career. He's, he's just turning 50. He's kind of feeling that mortality, you know, his, his age and his career that's been wearing on him. And he's almost made it. He's mm-hmm. almost jumped across the finish line, mm-hmm. made it. He hasn't been hurt. He uh, is taking care of himself. And that sets the entire tone for the characterization between him and uh, Mel Gibson. Yeah, it, it really sets uh, the, the dynamic that we're going to be looking at specifically inside of this film is one we're going to hit very, very heavy. And it's because of the di- the dynamic nature of both of their relationships. One's on a completely different path than the other. Right. And that them being so different, so different from each other right. really does help the path of this movie. There's no question there. Right. A young Mel. Those of you listening to this in any of the recent years will not be surprised that I originally thought that young Mel Gibson, this again, this was 1987. Right. I remember sleeping over with Adam Raines and Carlo Bizzese over at Adam's house. And we sat and we thought, you know what? Mel Gibson would make a perfect Wolverine. Sure. And there's no question. There's sure. no question in my mind. In fact, there's lots of tendencies inside of this movie that would have drifted specifically over to what a Mel Gibson Wolverine would have looked like, right. especially back in the 1980s. You almost is, already had the hair going, right? Yeah, yeah. So. The hair, the attitude, the craziness, the all the screaming, the the giant super saucer-shaped eyes. The rage. The rage, all of that. All of that was there. And uh, just a uh, young Mel Gibson was a completely different Mel Gibson than what he's been painted to today. Sure. And I wanted to make sure that we recognize that inside of this review because it is uh, it is a giant piece of what needs to be a welcoming path back to acting for Mel Gibson. Sure. Two characters introduced, an old cop and a burnout cop. This is a spectacular piece of the dynamic that is pushed and pulled and showcased throughout the entire film. And I think a lot of people mistake what we see here as something we're going to talk about later in this, which is the buddy cop movie, quote unquote. And there's no question that they're buddies, especially at the end of the film. Right. There's no question that they're cops at the end of this film. Right. But I don't like to characterize this as a buddy cop film. No, this is this is the dynamic. The dynamic is set between the contrast between the two mm-hmm. and the contrast between the two makes the characterization. Mm-hmm. It's not a buddy film. It's a it's a film where uh, you have a guy that's, like I said, at the end of his career. I mean, there's vast differences. He's at the end of his career. He's about to slide into home plate and get out of law mm-hmm. enforcement and make it. Mm-hmm. Get and on that got, boat. And mm-hmm. he's, doing, he's trying to do everything mm-hmm. right. Yeah. And then you've got the other guy that is just, he's on the edge. He's a burnout. Yeah. He's uh, he's he's about to go off the deep end, mm-hmm. and something bad's about. He's either going to die, or uh, he's going to go to jail, or or something. And that dynamic creates the drama. And we talked about this before. This is a drama. This isn't a comedy. Mm-hmm. It's got comic relief, mm-hmm. and it's good. Mm-hmm. Well, but it this needs is it. a drama. It, it, need, it needs that comic relief because it, the drama is so thickly painted. Mm-hmm. If, if you imagine this movie without any of the moments that kind of make you snicker to yourself or right. at all make you grin, if, imagine all that's gone. Right. This becomes a very, very dark movie. Oh, sure. And I, I think a completely different feeling movie, no less. Uh, but the, sure. the, the context that this is some har-har buddy cop movie, that is not what Lethal Weapon is, and it's not the mystique of Lethal Weapon, which is why I originally was horrified to hear that they're going to be making a television series out of this. Because an ongoing 
traditionally 22-episode season of a television program. That is a lot to live up to. Sure. Especially on something that is buddy copness. Now, the the trailer that you can watch, which we'll link up to inside the show notes for this episode, that will point over to the trailer for the television series. Mm-hmm. Chris had the chance to, to for the first time today, no, no right. less, to watch that. And your thoughts of that were what? It was interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to have to see how they paint it. Mm-hmm. It's it, Especially it had, over a series of episodes. It's a lot to live up to. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And when you talk about, I want to hit on this buddy cop type of uh, genre that Mm -hmm. you're talking about. I don't think that this movie follows that. I think what the movie tries to follow is the camaraderie among not just law enforcement. Mm -hmm. I think it's the camaraderie among humanity, two human beings, one where they're they're just on the edge. They're falling off the edge because they have no family to belong to. Mm -hmm. The other one has an exceptional family. Mm -hmm. He's got the law enforcement family, but he also has his immediate family. Mm -hmm. And to try to bridge that gap, and I think that's what this movie does, brings that together. The camaraderie that they they find is among those two aspects. Family, family with law enforcement, also immediate family, family with the people that you're actually related to. Mm -hmm. And to say, hey, this is a buddy film, I would say no. this This is a film about hope about, uh, in some aspects, compassion, but it's also, it's an action film. Mm-hmm. It's it's built around this action, and it's I think it's brilliant writing to encase it around this camaraderie that you find in law enforcement and among people yeah. and families. And, and I, I, think, I think the pieces, parts that come out of that are this. The camaraderie absolutely helps to tame the chaos sure. that is Riggs' life. I, I absolutely acquiesce to that, but a buddy cop movie this is not. No, and I just I want to I want to make sure that we we push more of that right because what that will end up doing is I don't think anybody should paint the original Lethal Weapon no. as some sort of buddy cop comedy romp no because it is not it, it there are definitely moments where you you can out loud laugh right but those are inserted again to make the the darkness not nearly as dark those are the those are the sidebar that's not the yeah. primary focus right. Yeah, the primary focus inside of the movie. Well, let's not be coy. There is some dark, dark. stuff going on here. Oh, yeah. It, it's super dark, and that's why there's got to be that that lighter edge. I, I would go back to Die Hard again, which is another Richard Donner film, which is mm-hmm. uh, obviously it's it's in the same vein. It ha- It's all gorgeous. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But a lot of comic relief in it. Lots of comic relief. So but it is a, it's a dark super scene. Super dark. It's about you know, super dark terrorism. Too. Yeah. Right? The, the, the Mr. Takaki scene, getting his head blown off inside right. of the conference room. Right. Dude, this is dark stuff. Right. And uh, it, that definitely needs that that swath of comedy to to, uh, to balance that off. Sniper, snipers everywhere. Chris, we unfortunately live right now in the time of what has now been documented as the most prolific active shooter environment we've ever had. Right. And other than being able to now document it and everybody knows that things happen instantaneously now via the internet and history and people looking to document these things. Right. What we see here inside of what is a deleted scene inside your director's cut that you brought over to me mm-hmm. is a scene where there is a sniper. The sniper is shooting at not only the police officers that are on scene, but also at children that are on scene. Right. And so this all touches very, very close to heart. And we're guessing was just removed for time and right. that you could indicate that Riggs was completely off center and dangerous right. with the other scenes that were still left over. Right. The scene unfolds with him early on trying to depict his character going to this school where they have a sniper 
that's uh, up high in the school and is actually shooting randomly Mm -hmm. has hit some kids Mm -hmm. and Riggs walking up and being shot at Mm -hmm. and taking the guy out. Mm -hmm. And I think it's to further characterize how much on the edge he is, but also to characterize how he has compassion. One point in that scene, he's about to walk away. He's like, okay, somebody else has got this. I see. And he sees a kid pass by, a kid that's wounded. Mm -hmm. And he looks at that kid, even though he's on the edge, even though he's lost everything and his personality is, I just don't care about anything anymore. He still cares. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a key point to who he is and what that character is. Yeah, and it's one of the few tethers that he still has to humanity. Right. That is something that, especially inside this film, Mel Gibson plays to the hilt. Right. That there are still tethers to humanity, but... No, I'm gonna go do this quick. Right. That that that, that is a very a very bold dynamic inside of his character inside of this movie for sure. Right. The passion of the hair Christ. I of course am referring jokingly to the passion of the Christ, but I am not joking when I tell everybody that right now, if you could remove the hair from Mel Gibson's <laughs> head and put it on my head, and I could have that hair forever, I'm good. <laughs> You'd still absolutely make it stylish, huh? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I remember Jeff and I specifically talking about loving his haircut when when we went and watched this movie. It was awesome. It was it, it was the haircut to have back then. It, it it was a fantastic swath of hair, and it was perfect inside of every scene. Mm-hmm. When he's soaking wet, perfect. Mm-hmm. When he's in the middle of the desert running, perfect. When he's fighting Mr. Joshua at the end, mm-hmm. perfect hair. And it is. I would right now, and take a copy from my bald friend Chris here, yeah. uh, we would definitely be wearing those and rocking that hair Absolutely. right now. The look of the movie, Roger inside the condo bedroom. This is something that we've talked about and that it's Richard Donner. Duh, it's all going to look awesome. But what is done a lot inside of this movie is that you can freeze frame. And inside of the freeze frame, you have what is a gorgeous thing that would make a picture inside of anybody's house anywhere. And this scene struck me, and it made me mention this, but it's the scene where Roger is upstairs looking at the bedroom where Amanda Hunsacker bailed out the window. And there is a scene where he's not sitting on the bed. He's sitting on the floor, and he's got a series of things in his hands. And behind him is this gently swaying drape. Right. And, of course, behind the gently swaying drape, is where Amanda Hunsucker bailed off the, the the rail right inside of the condo. And it is just, it is gorgeous. And the instant you can paint that with not only what you see, but what you hear in regard to music, in regard to the thoughts that Danny Glover is processing as a character, in regard to the how it sits inside of the movie, that's class act. Right, it was it, the it, details. It's great stuff. It, it, it's, right. it's super deep. It allows you to plow deeper into what the context and the meaning of that that scene does for you. And Donner is a master of it. Right. Think of all the scenes inside of Die Hard where nothing could be said, but you're instantly impacted by whatever you see on the screen. Right. Uh, the one I always go back to for that, especially inside of Die Hard, is everybody close your eyes and you hear the squunching of glass. You hear the running of water. And it's not because somebody was walking over glass. It's because... Of the glass that is embedded in the feet, feet right. of John McClane. That is power. And just hearing me tell you that instantly snaps you back to that vision. That's the power of Donner. And back to the scene in the condo or mm-hmm. apartment. Yeah. 
the detail that they put into that, I agree. It's something that adds to the theme. And to, and to me, it goes back to that theme of the, the father-daughter mm. aspect mm. where he's looking, yeah. at, he's looking at the picture. You know, it's a picture of Hunsaker and his daughter, you know, when she was littler, mm-hmm. I believe. Mm-hmm. And the, the other details that they put around that, I think he wants to paint this scene. The other little details that he wants to promote within that, such as the blowing curtain, the rail where she goes over where the tragedy happens, and wrap that back into a human aspect of, hey, this was this guy's daughter. Mm-hmm. I think that those details envelop that scene. He puts those in there, and it drives home further the humanity bridge yeah. between this is somebody's daughter that they lost. Yeah, it really does. The other thing that it gets to is that He's got a daughter home. It's the same age. Right. The the impact of just that hits me as it hits Chris right. because we also have children that are around that same age. Right. And you just, you know, you can't imagine your own going over the the, the, the rail of a 20-story building. Right. Just horrifying. Super impactful. Right. The reality of PTSD and cops. Yeah, it's an important aspect to talk about Super in this. Super key. At, you know, and before you start... This is something that Chris and I have talked about, I think, in just about every one of our reviews at some point. I believe so. Is there is an educational aspect and, in my opinion, duty for people that review movies like this. We can sit here and yuckety yuck about what makes us laugh. Mm -hmm. We can even dig into what is impactful emotionally. Mm -hmm. But there is an educational element that is required because it's super depicted inside of this film. And I know a lot of people have drifted right by it. Sure, Absolutely. And the reality of this aspect in this film is probably overlooked. Mm-hmm. Back in the 80s, you know, when we go to the scene where the psychologist is talking to the captain or the uh, officer that was in charge, mm-hmm. and he's blowing her off, saying, you know, that whatever, Psycho he's bullshit. just yeah, he's yeah. trying to get psycho mm-hmm. pay, so yeah. on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Back in the 80s, and I was not a police officer in the 80s, but from my understanding, back in the 80s and years ago, PTSD was not noticed mm-hmm. among police officers. But back then, some statistics were that the suicide rate among police officers was three times the national average. So a police officer killed themselves three times quicker than everyone else. There was uh, problems with alcoholism, prescription pill abuse, the marriage and divorce rate, uh, and it's still pretty bad. The marriage and divorce rate is uh, 70%, 70%, 80%. So those kind of things impacted police officers. These days, modern-day law enforcement that's more recognized. Police departments and those in law enforcement try to take steps to alleviate that. But back then, I think that that was a very real thing that they inserted into this film. And I'm glad they do flush that out. Yeah, it's also another reason why we go and we not so much grab and or attack a movie like this. But it's because the paradigm of what happens to people mm-hmm. when you say, you know, they're doing things that are a bit suicidal, boss. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, what would happen with that sentence nowadays is something completely, completely different, different than right. what happened back then or decades before then. Mm-hmm. How many movies or television shows can we look at and there is either a cop on the ragged edge or right. a cop that doesn't care what happens to him. Right. He just wants to go and be a cop. Okay, right, but are they suicidal? Right. <laughs> well, they just walk into what is a potential hail of gunfire because they can? Right. Because they're wearing a badge? Right. Okay. Th- those are all things that you absolutely have to recognize, but then understanding how it now is attacked and right. looked at at all 
right. is super different than what it was previously. And that, that that speaks perfectly to perspective. Absolutely. And realistically, when you look at that and you look at that character that Mel Gibson plays, back then the way that it was dealt with by him was realistic too. Oh yeah. He had nobody to go to. Right. The department was blowing him off. Who who is going to help him? That camaraderie, that uh, that person that he works with, the other maybe other officers. A lot of them didn't want to have anything to do with him. But luckily, he finds that dynamic mm-hmm. with this partner. Nobody will trust him. And I think that is the crux of this movie. I think that's what makes it. Putting the psych professional into the, quote, psych bullshit envelope, where in reality, she's right. Absolutely. Again, looking back in comparison to what was 1987's view of, oh, it's the blonde lady that thinks she knows everything. Ah, screw her. Right, the non-law enforcement. Yes, and I remember vividly looking at, oh, she doesn't know what the hell she's talking about. That's Mel Gibson. He's a cop. What does she know? Right. And the answer is now, as a 46-year-old male with all kinds of interpreting experience in my past, she is absolutely right. Correct. About what's going on with Riggs. And so, again, I, I, I love being able to come back to movies like this to, again, it's not so much exposed, but to look at what was Versus what is, especially inside of professions, where we can get people like Chris here that are inside the profession to give the perspective of what was happening versus what would happen now. Right. Law enforcement back then as opposed to law enforcement now. And she was correct. There's no way that this guy would be back on the streets after the vivid examples that he's given that he is suicidal, that he is on the edge. Uh, it It wouldn't happen these days. Back then... I don't know. Uh, probably. Maybe, you know, maybe that was a precedent back then. And like I said, they didn't address PTSD uh, like they do today. The war is over when the war they're referring to is Vietnam. This has changed over the years, especially as we've now been engaged in a war effort series across multiple locations mm-hmm. that's now more than twice as long as the Vietnam War went. Right. And so it's a completely different dynamic. When you say the word Vietnam vet, it has a completely different connotation now because we have a war experience that's two times longer than Vietnam actually lasted. Right. It's, it's a very interesting dynamic, but also spills perfectly into PTSD and how impactful that is now impacting the soldiers that are coming back from war. Correct. Correct. There, there are hundreds of efforts now daily, and we'll link to a bunch of them that refer to the suicide rates inside of returning veterans. And it is something that you can help us make a giant dent in by using any of the links over at whatcopswatch.com inside of the show notes for this episode to help returning veterans face the largest enemy of their war history themselves. Right. To let them know that they're not alone. Yeah. We stand with them. Setting the tone of the lethal weapon heroes. This scene that we're referring to here is the scene where Riggs and Murtaugh are introduced to each other, and they're walking out inside of the uh, the parking structure, right. giving the banter back and forth. It is one of the best scenes inside of this movie, right. and it's because in the span of two and a half minutes, you are given absolute composition of each character to each other. Right. It's tremendous. It's one of my favorite scenes inside the film. It sets the tone for the entire movie, mm-hmm. and in a quick period of time, it shows you the limitations or the guidelines or the boundaries that each character has mm-hmm. and how that's going to mesh and mold and how it's going to conflict mm-hmm. equally is important. Right, right. So it sums that up, I believe, in that scene. And, you know, going back to, you know, the war is over, 
I think that's what kicks it off. The war is over and referring to Vietnam. Mm-hmm. But I think that it imposes a question on the viewer's mind, is the war really over? The war on the streets, the war that uh, these guys are fighting every day as law enforcement going out there confronting these bad guys. I mean, confronting, like we said, a very dark presence mm-hmm. out there. Yeah. And the traumatic and tragic things that they see every day, trying to combat that, that's a war that just never ends. Mm-hmm. Do you smoke? You're hurting my ears here. I know I'm hurting your ears, but this is something <laughs> we absolutely have to have to mention. This is uh, one of my favorite one of my favorite quotes from this movie, and everybody's going, "What the hell are you talking about, Wilkerson? <laughs> Do you smoke? I don't remember that in the movie." But it's one of my favorite scenes, and it's because just like the previous scene where we meet and are get familiarized with the heroes right. of Lethal Weapon, this scene refers specifically to the how badass these characters are on the other side, the opposing side, the, the bad villains, guys. That's right. Inside of this film, and and the the very it, it's super subtle. But it is one of my very favorite scenes because my original Two Guys Talking host, co-host, uh, Carlo Bezzesi and I mm-hmm. did not smoke and never have smoked. Right. And so when someone would ask us back then, you know, do you smoke? The response wouldn't be, ah, oh, you know, I don't. I, I, I have no interest in smoking. Thanks so much. It would be an instant snapback. So the example would be if Chris were to ask me, do you smoke? Do you smoke? Ugh. <laughs> and so I'm going to I'm gonna have to muzzle him. Yeah, it's yeah, it's definitely jarring, but it, it it was something that we got from this movie, and it was fun. It was Fortunately, fun. Mike never uh, got charged with a peace disturbance, <laughs> yeah. or anything like that. Oh, never, no, so. never, never us. The other one that I absolutely <laughs> love from this scene is, uh, and Carl does it perfectly. He he does it like if you close your eyes, you can envision this scene with him because he's got the all the voices down of everybody you see inside of this scene. But the other one that's fun is my, my lighter. Right. That one and then the guy's the, stumbling. Yeah. You're out there like Pluto, right, man. Right. That's that he has the, all the, he has this entire scene down where I don't have to do anything. I just close my eyes and sit next to him and he can snap it off verbatim. It's a ton of fun and what I remember from that scene. But the effect of the scene was was exactly what they wanted, oh, correct? Yeah. yeah. They wanted to tell you how crazy, how nuts and how bad the bad guys were. And they were. And when I don't know about you, but when they started burning the guy's arm when Gary Busey holds his arm out there and they start frying it with the lighter. And the guys, you could tell the, the other guy cringes because it mm-hmm. smells bad and starting to fry his arm. I went, wow, they're real psychopaths. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, well, the effect was good. Yeah. I mean, it, it, they got their point across. Not only get their point across, but they did it swiftly. Right. One of the things I tire of, especially in now major motion pictures, is that the depiction of the evil bad guys has to be so in-depth and detailed. Right. Guys, bad people are bad. Right. And sometimes you just have to take their word on it. <laughs> right. And this this very quick scene is a perfect depiction of what's happening and why they're bad. And when you go on too long with that, I agree with you. <laughs> I, it loses it for me. I, I don't want to see it. Right. You eventually get to the point where you go, right, so he's bad, right? Let's I move think on. I get it. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There you smoke. All right, careful. Heroin. Then and now. A sad reality. Yeah, it is a sad reality. Heroin, when they talk about Prolific. it in this movie. Yeah. They, you know, it was it it was a setup to where heroin was a, a big money. It was big money. 
and and to find big money because th- again, there's there's completely different perspectives that are going on here. You know, millions heroin of, back then meant what? Well, I mean, millions and millions of dollars importing heroin. They're making big money off of it, mm-hmm. but also it was um, big money as far as it was expensive. Mm-hmm. If you you know and. Hardcore users, people that were really addicted to drugs, were buying it, but you also had to have some money to Mm -hmm. buy it. It was the same with cocaine. still is the same with cocaine, but the sad reality is today that the availability of heroin is so prolific Mm -hmm. that it's so cheap. The the price of heroin has come down so much that it's almost as available. Well, it is, is as available as marijuana was, and if you can remember back into the uh, 70s and such, 60s, 70s. You know, marijuana was pretty prevalent Mm -hmm. and uh, continued to this day. Well, in fact, these days it's even legal Legal. in a couple Mm -hmm. states. Mm -hmm. But heroin is prolifically prevalent and available, so much so that the younger generation is buying heroin, using heroin, just like they did marijuana back in Mm -hmm. the 70s and 80s. Mm The Heroin is uh, a lot more lethal, and we're having a lot more uh, problems with people dying, people overdosing. We have a lot of near-death experiences. In other words, people taking it, nearly dying. So it's a huge epidemic and a huge problem these days, whereas back when this movie was filmed, it was more of a drug that uh, was a big-dollar drug, a little bit harder to find. And, boy, if you had somebody that had possession of heroin – well, that was that was a big deal. That's you know that's uh, that's not a small matter anymore. That is something that's going to lead to probably a big time dealer. Mm-hmm. So these days, a lot of a lot of people have heroin, unfortunately. And there was uh, a there was an article that I saw. On the, yeah, it was an article that I saw on the internet last week Friday, and the headline inside of the article read: "52 overdoses, six deaths." Sure. Friday and Saturday evening. That was the headline. Sure. And I I don't. I don't think people understand what is going on with heroin today here right. inside of 2016. Right. Epidemic does not encompass what is going on with heroin, no. especially inside the United States. No. And I don't think that you can point back to one reason, but one likely add-on is that we've been in a war, right. series of war settings that where that is the platform. Sure. I mean, it, poppy it, fields are rife. There well, is it, to and fro when we decide to kind of interact and make sure there's not a war, and then we'll pull back a little bit so that yeah, we don't want to deal with that right now. Right. And then we'll push back in, and that there is nothing consistent then also right. means that there is the availability of poppy seeds, which means more heroin. Right. So it's, it's, it's a, it's, it is a war. It's an ongoing war, and right. heroin is unlike anything that I think we've seen ever. Absolutely. Be- because like you said with marijuana, marijuana, you, you smoke marijuana, you get high on marijuana, you're off marijuana, and then you kind of continue on your life. Inside of heroin, it is a cliff. You start on heroin. You die the first you time, jump perhaps. off the cliff. Right. right. And, I, I, and I know people, I know, I unfortunately know people that have been addicted to heroin. Right. And without significant intervention, it is very, very difficult for you to do anything. But die. And as you know, as a police officer, I don't condone. I mean, I know that there are states that are legalizing marijuana, and I know people have opposed me on. I don't condone legalization of anything. My view on it is, I've got enough problems with people that uh, that shouldn't be on anything. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, people say, well, they regulate it. Well, I mean, they regulate alcohol. I got a lot of problems with alcohol being a cop too. Mm-hmm. You know, as far as uh, 
people's behavior. But yeah, heroin is is absolutely lethal. It's not one of those things that's gonna, you know, per se kill you over time. You could take it once and die. Darn. But tell yeah. me back in the seventies and eighties where you can remember reading that fifty two people overdosed on heroin in one weekend. Didn't happen. Didn't happen. Right? Didn't, didn't happen. Not only that, I, I went to school in a reasonably affluent high school. Mm-hmm. And so there were people using heroin inside of my high school. Mm-hmm. The difference is that their parents made shit tons of cash. Right. And so there was availability for them. Right. But then to pass that down, it just that wasn't available. No, it wasn't being traded. It wasn't being right. traded in school right. just there, like at the like it is today. Like it is today. Like <laughs> marijuana was. Yes. It, it, it did not exist and again that it is so prolific now. That there is at least three or four television shows that you can watch nowadays mm-hmm. that either refer to law enforcement or some sort of medical intervention right. that's going on to prevent heroin. It is an epidemic that all of you can help on. Again, we're going to have links to all kinds of organizations so that, one, if you are addicted to heroin right. or if you know a heroin user currently, we're going to drop you a bunch of links inside of this episode's show notes over at whatcopswatch.com forward slash lethal weapon. And a lasting... Uh, a final thought on that too, Mike, just to give you an idea of how bad it's progressed to, mm-hmm. law enforcement now yeah. is moving toward using that Narcan yeah. to yeah. equip police officers yeah. because there are so many overdoses of potential deaths. Yeah. And for those of you that don't know what Narcan is, Narcan is the now prescribed to medical mm-hmm. uh, emergency professionals and I believe uh, police officers as well in many They're states. Starti- right? We're just starting to get into those programs. Mm-hmm. We don't use it yet, but there are some law enforcement agencies. you got to put certain things in place. But because it's so prolific mm-hmm. and because so many people die of it, yeah. they're equipping first responders, emergency responders, because right. they need even the cops who get there first most of the time to try to save lives yeah, because and, of all the overdoses. And again, to continue, what what this drug does is drug user overdoses right. on on heroin. Emergency medical technicians arrive. They detect something is still viable right. inside of inside of the individual, and it undoes they, the effects yes, of the opiates. It, it begins removing the effects of the opiates so that there can potentially be life saving activity. Right, and that's key. It, right. It's huge, and that's why it, it and because of the. But that's how just given how bad the, yeah, bad the yeah. issue is. Yeah. Needing to find that door is right. a terrible search. Right. And uh, again, it is prolific and something we hope you'll help us get rid of. I like neat. Can neat ever work inside of Hollywood? Now, I like neat is a, is a line that's used inside of this film. I liked it too. I, I do too. I, the only thing I like more than the line used inside this movie is when television and movies bother to make things neat. Right. I, I, whenever somebody says, you know, that movie was a little simple for me. I get it. I totally get it. But what were you looking for instead? Does it need to be more? Right, right. And, and now there are times where I'm like, the most recent Star Trek film is a good sample. Mm-hmm. So what you're telling me is that it's another revenge film, right? Not seen it, but... <laughs> what The bottom line is that, Chris, it's another revenge film. I okay. know you're you're amazed. They think that another revenge film for Star Trek is going to work, but hey, the original Star Trek II. Hey, the reboot of Star Trek in 2009. Mm -hmm. Hey, the second reboot of Star Trek in 2012. All of those films are all revenge-based films, and they made Mm -hmm. cash. Yes, I totally get it. Mm -hmm. Can't we move on to something else? Because Mm -hmm. there are neat, clean things that can be done that have nothing to do with being super in-depth and twisted sideways. Right. Now, on the other side of this is something like a usual suspects. Right. 
but that's in a good convoluted slash complex way. Right. Uh, Usual Suspects is by no stretch a simple, clean movie. It is not. Mm-hmm. But what it delivers is absolutely clean. You get to the end and you go, yeah, mm-hmm. yes, that is exactly what happened. Right. And way too many television shows and feature films do the opposite of that now, where they blend in all of this stuff that you're supposed to somehow be able to take in, mm-hmm. internalize, generate, and then have a picture when it's done instead of watching all that on the screen. Right. There's a reason it's a medium, and it's because we want the storytelling to happen inside the medium. Right. We want people to think for themselves, right. but don't make it where it's this super jazzy ornate thing where people have to try and figure something out and then right. hopefully it kind of matches what's at the end of the movie that's not good entertainment in my opinion well i think that line was in there kind of to go off of what you said the i think that line was in there to flush out that the veteran detective likes neat the case is open and closed but that's not who he really is right Right. He's going to think about every aspect of that. He's going to follow up on every lead. He knows that he's that good investigator. Yeah. Just like the viewers of these shows that you're talking about, they're going to look at every aspect. They're going to look at the details. They're going to think about it. They're going to try to figure it out. I know I've seen people, even me as a cop, yeah, I watch the shows and I try to figure it out before I get to the end. Everybody else does that too. Mm-hmm. So. I think that's why they had this line in there to, you know, yeah, I like neat. Yeah, I like neat. Yeah, I'm just going to I'm just going to leave it. Look, it's a close ca- close case. Let's put it in the file. No, you're not going to do that. Yeah. You're not going to do that. You're going to revisit this and there's more there and you're going to dig deep yeah. into this case. And I think they wanted to. I think they wanted to point that out. I yeah. thought that was a good line. It was a great line. It's also bookmarked wonderfully inside of the target shooting scene, mm-hmm. where they're talking about this very, very convoluted, twisty, turny potential. Maybe it went this way, right? And what they both realize as they're standing there firing their weapons, as you get into the hilarity of the smiley face moment, right? Is that it's not so far fetched. That's a realistic dialogue too among <laughs> police that. officers. Yeah. That's realistic dialogue. It's yeah. hey, let's go through every possibility. Okay, give me the craziest scenario that you can think of because I don't want to not think about that. Right. Banter in the car, smoking versus ending a career at the finish line. That you've used this phrase several times, I love, is the sliding into home plate slash finish line of a career, especially in particular in law enforcement. And I love that that visual is excellent Mm -hmm. in that especially Murtaugh would make for a very nice, quote, clean slide into home plate. Right. Crossing the finish line. Look at me. I'm done. Right. Simple and neat, just like we talked about. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And this – Again, that is a piece of the overarch paint that needs to happen inside of this movie that I think a lot of people forget. Mm -hmm. This is not just about old cop, young cop. Right. That's not what this is. And anybody that wants to paint it that simple is also going to paint it as, look, it's the old cop, young cop, buddy cop movie. Right. No, it's not. Mm -mm. This is something way more in depth. It's about making it through a a longstanding career and closure, closure to a career that may have taken your life, may have uh, impacted you psychologically, emotionally, may have broken up your family, may have you may have become a statistic with the alcoholism and the suicide and that, but he didn't. Mm-hmm. He's, he's right there and he's celebrating that I'm almost there. And then all of a sudden they stick him with the guy that's going to make one of the statistics. Yeah. He's inevitably yeah. going to 
be on the bad side of the effects of law enforcement. And that's really the dynamic of the movie. Yeah. When I say the word gauntlet, what connotation do you have when I say the word gauntlet? Well, I absolutely think that that it applies in this instance where you're you're going through this career. There are all these things that can go against you Mm -hmm. going through this law enforcement career, all these obstacles, all these things where you're taking a hit. But to make it through, and I think that's a great analogy with Danny Glover's character. Hey, look at me. I'm 50. I made it through LAPD. I made it through all of these things that could have gone against me. Mm But I beat the gauntlet. Yeah. I beat the gauntlet. No, 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 and you're going to laugh at this because I, I just had an argument with somebody recently about the context of the word gauntlet. Mm-hmm. Because they're like, you know, why did you pick the word gauntlet? And I said, well, because you go through a whole bunch of stuff and it's not easy. Right. Gauntlet, right? Right. No. The gauntlet refers to punishment. And I'm like, Mm-mm. punishment? I, I, I would have never thought that a gauntlet is punishing. In fact, if I have to go to a context of gauntlet, I would go defense. Right. Because you put on a gauntlet so that you can make a move right. and be protected. Right. It's, that's the, yeah, that's that, the that base. Actually, yeah. That, that, that's my, my context of gauntlet. That actually is our first call to the audience because I really do want to hear from you. The person that I had an argument with has a significant impact on my life and I really do want your input. Right. Let me know what you guys think the word gauntlet actually means, both in a context of going through a process of stuff, but the actual word. Let me know what you think by going over to whatcopswatch.com. I'm getting too old for this podcasting. Click on the contact button on the top right-hand side of the page. Fill out the quick web form and tell us, what do you think the word gauntlet actually means? Getting back to Daddy Hunsaker. The guy that plays Michael Hunsaker inside of this film is wonderful. Uh, Way too short, but super endearing. Right. You know, he's a father absolutely caught in the middle of something terrible. Right. Not only is he caught in, in the center of something terrible, not only is his daughter dead, right. but he has other family that he cannot possibly lose. Right. Unfortunately, inside of this scene, he dies. Right. And this scene is, I think, probably this and the parking structure scene are the quintessential look at the Lethal Weapon movie scenes. Right. There is nothing like this scene, I don't think, and inside of another movie where there is this incredibly endearing, look, I saved your life, but moment. Right. That's uh, another great sandwich piece to the bank moment, where Roger goes there to figure out how he can foster along what's going on, while at the same time digging into what the hell is going on with this. Correct. It, it's wonderful. It's this delicious sandwich of really contextual story that I know a lot of people forget about because this is a, quote, buddy cop movie. Right. And... Back in the bank scene where you have sympathy, I did, have sympathy for this guy who's lost his daughter. Yeah. When you get to the scene where he's shot and killed, my sympathy was kind of 50-50. I kind of agreed with Danny Glover where, you know, he told him, hey, you got off easy. Got off easy. Shot him and killed him. Mm -hmm. Maybe saved his family because of that. But, But let's take a look. He wasn't a good guy. I mean, he was importing heroin. He he was ruining lives. And he was... You know, and he was benefiting from it. So not a good guy. Do have the sympathy for his family and for him losing the daughter and such. And, you know, unrighteous, un- unjust that she lost her life, mm-hmm. but because of his unrighteous acts. Right. And right. in this scene at uh, where he gets killed, kind of brings all that together. I thought it was a great way that they bring all that together. They throw little caveats in there, too. And I even made a comment to you, Mike, when we were watching it. Hey, what's with the eggnog? Oh, that's right. It's Christmas. 
So he's got all this eggnog lined up. They yeah. use that in the scene for the graphic. Mm-hmm. It also serves I, I, as the perfect prop for when he gets shot straight right, through, where right. he also goes through that through that the milk to yeah. show to show yeah. Wow, yeah. a sniper shot from a helicopter just adds to the action. Kudos to kudos to yeah. the, those who wrote it, it in. It's tremendous, and I think maybe a tiny little bit of action busting that we'll get into talking about mm-hmm. is what would actually happen to that milk carton where it hit by a sniper round from a helicopter that close i think there'd be a completely different a different different fix that goes on at the end right the accuracy of a family dialogue yeah, the one, little details absolutely one of the things that i really wanted to talk about and it's 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 a little detail but it was something that really struck me as important because it made me feel like it was accurate like mm-hmm. it was it was reality his smaller daughter coming out to meet him where she's riding on his back and she's asking him if uh, Mel Gibson's a crook and, you know, a little, little bit of comedy relief. And yeah. the, just the interactions where they get inside and he's about to introduce her to his wife, but the little kid runs up and introduces her early on. It just made me feel like, hey, this is this is a real family. This is a real family dynamic. Mm-hmm. You know, and then you got the teenage daughter and she's, you know, staring at Mel Gibson. She's kind of <laughs> infatuated with yeah. him and the other kids are teasing her. Just a good family dynamic, a small detail, but I think it was just something that I'm glad that they wrote in and included to round out Danny Glover's character to show, hey, this is a real family. Yeah. They do they do things that, that other families do, and can you relate with your family? Yeah. And I could. I, I, I love pieces like this, one, because they're so simple. They're clean. Again, it goes right. back to being clean. What I also love is that it adds it adds a feather to the cap of what's going on inside the storytelling. Right. We don't need an in-depth background history of each and every one of the children and the wife. We don't need it. Right. We don't need it. What we need is some very well-placed dialogue that fits the bill, that emulates what a 25-year law, a law enforcement professional would hear. Right. And we totally get that. Yep. We totally get that inside this scene. And again, this goes to anybody that's ever going to write anything that is a television or feature film. Please include this. Absolutely. It's so straightforward and simple. Right. It's, it's a tiny little mention inside of a screenplay. Absolutely. You don't even have to write the dialogue. You just have to mention that it happens. Right. Don't overlook it. Don't overlook it because <laughs> when you overlook it, what happens in the end, I get to the end and they go, I, you know, it's just, that's not realistic. It, right. the, their family, the family right. is just not realistic. Right. And right. it does impact me in the end. It's a show that you have probably never seen. I think you've told me several times you've never seen it. But it is specifically why I was watching The Shield on FX. Mm-hmm. For all the picadillos of, quote, bad cop Vic Mackey, mm-hmm. the, the fact of the matter is that he placed you square mm-hmm. into the life of a real man. Mm-hmm. And that's what I appreciated about the show. It was a deeply conflicted individual mm-hmm. that there was a story about every single week inside of that program. And because of that being deeply conflicted, you instantly it were endeared to him, regardless of what he was doing. Mm-hmm. And over the course of a period of time, the teeter-totter of, I can't watch this because it's a bad cop. It is a bad cop. There's l- l- Let's not be coy. Right. There are many good things that Vic Mackey also did, mm-hmm. but he was a bad cop. There's right. no he, he was in charge of a corps of mostly bad cops. Right. But the endearment of him being a real man of a real family, mm-hmm. of real consequences that happened around him in his life, and his trying to make sure that those consequences don't impact him and his family outright right that that is his goal down to the last episode that is his goal 
and it doesn't end well for him in the end last episode, but it is what happens. Right. And having those little tiny bits, especially over the seven season, uh, a seven season show like that mm-hmm. is incredible. It, mm-hmm. it is an incredible, deep, rich picture that's painted as opposed to something that is quote, a buddy cop movie. Right. And that's why this, this movie lethal weapon is so much more thicker than that. I agree. A hundred dollars for a Three Stooges experience. Yeah, this was a deleted scene that they had in the director's cut, a scene where Mm -hmm. Riggs pulls up to a prostitute that's on the street, Mm -hmm. gets her in the car. 19 years old, no less. Well, and then asks her, okay, (laughs) how old are you you really? Be straight up with me. She's 16 years old. He gives her a hundred dollars. She says, well, what do you want me to do? And he says, I want you to go back and watch the Three Stooges with me. And that was somewhat the end of the scene. Uh, they had deleted that that scene. I believe that it was in there. Perhaps, perhaps they were trying to go to the compassionate side of you know what? Maybe I'm trying to get a kid off the street to where you know there's a 16 year old kid out here. She's into prostitution. I don't want her hooking up with somebody tonight. Maybe I can save this person. You know, or maybe it was they had a thought where. They were going to continue the investigation to where he was going to try to get information mm-hmm. from her about the prostitution connection with Hunsaker. Mm-hmm. It never developed mm-hmm. like that, so I could see why they would eliminate yeah. the scene. Yeah. But uh, maybe they were trying to go along the line of uh, the first my th- first theory of, you know what, I'm going to get this kid off the street for tonight. Or perhaps it was just how screwed up he was. I'll take somebody back with me. I'm going to even pay him $100, take somebody back with me to watch the Three Stooges, and that will prevent me from shooting myself tonight. Yeah, and I, I that the last line that you had there is what I was thinking when I saw that because that, that seemed I'd never seen that scene before. Mm-hmm. And when that is presented, that's what I was thinking. It was kind of his. He just got off this roller coaster of I'm two days ago I was going to kill myself, right? And now I just got done with this really great rich family experience, and I need to not be alone with my thoughts, right? And so he went and got somebody that he could do both your. Your initial plan, get the information right. to help save a girl. It doesn't have to be out for one night. All that can happen along with having the safety valve of I'm not going to be alone with my thoughts. Right. I'm not going to kill myself tonight. I think that was probably the picture. The problem is that you'll know that it's just taken us five minutes to paint that picture. Right. And that's not clean. No. It wasn't. It wasn't <laughs> so clean. It, was, it wasn't clean. And <laughs> one of your characters, one of your main characters, your heroic characters – is picking up a girl who he knows is 16 years old, yeah. paying her $100, even yeah. though he's only going to watch you know, the Three Stooges with her, still, does that look good? Is that the? Are you painting the heroic picture there? And, and the answer uh, is no. Right. Right. The classic PR-24 side-handled baton. So the epic baton makes a couple appearances <laughs> here in the movie. One where I believe they're... Well, actually, if you go back, when they're about to do their Christmas caroling and the female sergeant pokes the guy in it, the chest. using it as the, right, uh, as now the, everybody will use and follow this. Right. This, follow this follow the melody. Yeah. Let me use the PR-24 <laughs> yeah. side handle baton. It also makes an appearance where they have the police car at the end crash through the house and uh, Mr. Joshua shoots up the police car. They use that to, to uh, I guess, brace the accelerator. And then in the end, when he has this classic throwdown fight, he grabs the baton and he's he's using it as kind of a uh, martial arts type of weapon right. it's a, to it's defeat his, the bad guy. It's his ninja nunchuck. Right. 
except that it's the classic P24 side handle yeah, baton. Yeah, the PR24 right. side handle baton. Eventually, in law enforcement, they figured out, hey, this thing doesn't work that good. <laughs> so let's just go back to a straight, expandable baton. Yeah. And we, we, uh, we, I remember training on these when I was back in the academy. And back in the, and back in the day, they were the thing, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember the old T.J. Hooker series. And I didn't watch that. Sure. I didn't watch that series sure. a lot. But For, I, I guess there was – somersault was, was a – Yeah, wasn't there a, a scene where he throws the thing to trip? I in high school. To, right. So, <laughs> you know, it was, uh, it was actually a, an iconic, uh, I guess, image of law enforcement back in the day. Oh, those are those – batons that the police use and oh look they got the side handle yeah that's really innovative and all that in the end i guess they didn't work that well and we went away from them but uh back in the day they were the thing that uh, designated law enforcement yeah i I think they might have been used too well like in the rodney king beating yeah (laughs) and so to get the image out of yeah out of the public lexicon that might have been found more value in the straight batons that might have been the uh the new the blackjacks the uh, the expand um, well they they use a uh, asp expandable asp. baton That's and it. asp yeah, yeah. is a name brand but they use an expandable baton mm-hmm. uh, these days and realistically Chris is holding one in my throat right now as long yeah as realistically as we go <laughs> on the baton and those types of impact weapons yeah, I don't know they they've we've we've evolved to other things that work better. I mean mm-hmm. the the taser works a lot better than everything else. Oh, yeah. We've had mace, you know, we still have that. We still have a straight baton. You know, when we get start and get into things like the taser, it, it just works a uh, lot better. Night and day quality, right? Yeah. No, totally understood. The arm in triangle and its effectiveness. Now Chris watching this feature film especially mm-hmm. after this many years mm-hmm. and my many years now, both writing for and reviewing mixed martial arts. Mm-hmm. It's fun to see that they clearly had a trainer working with Mel Gibson on mm-hmm. the grappling that was going on inside of this, mo- this movie. Mm-hmm. Because what you see depicted here that puts Mr. Joshua to sleep is what's called an effective arm in triangle. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it is the go to sleep moment. This still, is a, what, still a good move yes, today. Yes. And it is seconds. It, Mm-hmm. Uh, someone that is not trained to defend it, you would be out in a mere couple of seconds. Mm-hmm. So that it took the, Mr. Joshua as long as it did, mm-hmm. as someone who is trained to defend against it, very, very appropriate. And it's another piece of what I love about great action films is that they research that. Right. That is an effective move, even for professionals that know how to defend against it. Right. For a while. Right. And then you go to sleep. And that's exactly what happened here. Riggs does not kill the bad guy, right? at least at first. Riggs does not kill the bad guy in cold blood. Right. I think this is a rounding out of the humanity. Yes, I and totally And he's come through that. this entire gauntlet. gauntlet of humanity, right? <laughs> yes, right? absolutely. And, and, and will absolutely. he lose his humanity after going through the gauntlet? That's the question in the end. That's what that's what the journey's been. Yeah, he's been through all these horrible things. He's got PTSD. He doesn't care. He's uh, he's going to wipe out whoever he wants to wipe out. And in the end, th- this guy that deserves to be wiped out. I mean, that's what you're thinking when you're watching the movie. Is he going to kill him in cold blood? You know, everybody is like, well, the guy deserves it. He's going to kill him in cold blood. You know, but no. In the end, our hero doesn't do it. He still has that bit of humanity left in him. They end up killing the guy in the end in self-defense, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. but uh, but not in cold blood. And I think that that was I think that was a classic theme 
back in those action movies. I agree. To have the the hero or one of the main characters act righteously. Not only act righteously, but you have no choice. Right. The other Richard Donner film that we've been pointing to throughout this entire review is Die Hard. Right. Die Hard is exactly the same way, where there's a guy that gets uh, hung, mm-hmm. except that he sprouts up from the stretcher with a uh, blanket over his face mm-hmm. with his giant Armalite blah, 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 blah whatever right. he was holding, to then murder people, mm-hmm. and he is then shot dead because he has to be shot dead. Right. Yeah. That, right. That's a that's a giant theme inside of just about every Donner film. Too. And I think that connects, too, with law enforcement. It's mm-hmm. the, look, you took an oath. These are the parameters. These are the parameters. These are the these are the boundaries, and you're going to use lethal force in self-defense. Well, at the end of this movie, Lethal Weapon, I think they went a little bit beyond the guidelines, especially when they have the the all-out fight in the front yard. You know, the throwdown in the front yard. Yeah. But in I'll the take end, responsibility for right, all of this. Right. Yeah. Sure you will. Yeah. But in the end, he doesn't use lethal force. He doesn't kill the guy in cold blood. Yeah. So. And, and that's very well said. It's something that I wouldn't have even thought of originally to put in the on as the, the, the coup de grace, the good inside this movie. Lethal Weapon, 1987, directed by Richard Donner. We're going to take a break here during the Lethal Weapon Perspective Review. An in-depth, always educational, fun perspective look at Lethal Weapon. We'll be right back. I'm Bob Chrisman from the Galaxy Cast reviewing sci-fi entertainment and more on the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Poker's been around a long time. The memories, the cards, the money, the players, it all makes for an outstanding experience. But where can you get true knowledge, tips, tricks, and detail? Don't miss the next episode of Two Guys Talking Poker where poker zealots Vic Porcelli and Andy Kazin interview poker greats like Michael the Grinder Mizraki, Alan Chainsaw Kessler, Greg Fossilman Raymer, and many more. Add on superb hand analysis and poker industry news, and you've got the Two Guys Talking Poker podcast. Check it out now at twoguystalkingpoker.com. That's twoguystalkingpoker.com. Shield was introduced in 1965 in an edition of Strange Tales, featuring Nick Fury. It was billed inside comic books as the greatest action thriller of all time. And it's safe to say that secret acronymed international intelligence collection endeavors would never be the same. Another, even greater, episodic series is ready to take the greatest action thriller of all time mantle. And we hope you'll be listening. Don't miss the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. podcast, reviewing each and every episode of ABC's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. bullet point by bullet point. Check it all out right now at agentsofshieldpodcast.com. That's agentsofshieldpodcast.com. Wouldn't it be cool if your advertising could last forever? It can. With perpetual advertising, here's how it works. Magazine, radio, and television ads are efforts that people might see or hear once, and then they're lost forever. Perpetual advertising provides you with the chance for repeat exposure and replayability weeks, months, even years after it's originally inserted inside a podcast. So even if your advertising is included in a podcast years ago, those efforts are still impactful, providing you with true return on investment, real impact, thanks to perpetual advertising. 
Are you ready to change the way you and your company or organization advertises? Find out more and launch a unique perpetual advertising effort now by visiting twoguystalking.com forward slash sponsors. Looking for a straightforward user interface on a cost-effective feature-filled multi-track recording software? Call off the search! Mixcraft from Acoustica has exactly what you're looking for. It's time to include reliable audio creation and editing software with real punch into your projects. Check out Mixcraft now over at acoustica.com forward slash Mixcraft and start a new generation of audio creation and editing today. Everyone, welcome back to the Perspective Review of 1987's Lethal Weapon on WhatCopsWatch.com. Just as every movie has goods, there's also the bad. Chris, we start off our bad listing with... Do you smoke? Do, do, do I smoke? Do you smoke? <laughs> A hearty welcome to the hollow point bullet that'll do the job right. Yeah, the only problem was is... After we reviewed it a couple times, it wasn't a hollow point bullet. No. I mean, like, there there is, Chris had mentioned that 22 hollow points have a pin dot hollow point on the end of them. And we looked for that. And it's not there. This is a a nine millimeter round, and it looks to me like it's fully coppered. It's a a full metal jacket, copper ball ammunition, perhaps. And uh, it's not a hollow point round. Right. The The other perspective that we talked about is, so he, he gets back home. He's going to use this hollow point bullet because he's contemplating suicide. Even they line it out later on why he's going to use this hollow point bullet. Well, your duty rounds would be a hollow point bullet. You wouldn't have to eject anything out of the yeah. gun. And I thought that that was the most interesting viewpoint is that I would venture a guess the vast majority of the people listening to this podcast. Mm-hmm. Well, we definitely have law enforcement people listening to it. The vast majority of you are not law enforcement. And so what that means, everybody, is that. Cops carry hollow point bullets in their duty weapons. Right. And I don't think you know that. Right. I, I'm absolutely certain that you don't know that. Right. So just know that they're terribly familiar with hollow point bullets. Right. And why you should not, in general, be using them. Right. And they, they uh, you know, when, and like we discussed before, the bullet that he was putting in that gun, you know, a fully coppered or full metal jacket bullet or a ball ammunition, whatever, those are the cheaper, more inexpensive type of bullets. That's what you would be given to go to the range and practice with because it is more, it's, it is inexpensive. The hollow point bullet is something that we'd probably use on duty. Actually, we do use on duty. Mm-hmm. It uh, has a limited penetration. It's, it's for stopping your assailant who's, you know, going to kill you and you don't want something that's going to go through multiple walls and hurt somebody innocent. Right. So, And that's one of the other pieces, parts about, you know, they go, why do you have to use hollow points then, Mr. Police Officer? Mm-hmm. That's why. Right. When you're shooting at people, you don't want the bullet to go through multiple walls. Because if it goes through one, that's already a bad day. Sure. Going through three and four walls right. is even a worse day. Right. So I hope that really brings, again, some perspective mm-hmm. of what you see both in Hollywood but also just in real life. For right. real. Right. Because that's more important in general. I think the other reason why they might have used this whole copper, wow, it looks so different bullet mm-hmm. is because, wow, it just looks so different. And to the vast majority of uneducated people, wow, look at that bullet. It's so incredibly shiny. And they right. say, are bullets copper? Right. 
Yeah, yeah. That, that might well, be. <laughs> yes, that, the answer is yes, they are. When they're when they're full metal jacket bullets, that's exactly what they look like. That might be. Not to get off track, too, but I know in one of the later lethal weapons where they have the, uh, they have there was a big thing on the bullets, the armor-piercing bullets and, and so on and mm-hmm. so forth, and uh, the they had the scene where they shoot through these armor-piercing bullets and, you know, in a 9-millimeter handgun, and they shoot through the bucket of the high-lift D8 uh, Caterpillar or whatever it was. Yeah, not realistic. But you know, I mean, <laughs> shooting through that plate metal with the nine millimeter round, um, I can't comment on it as much as Paul Bastine, who we should bring in for comment on that. But yeah. but uh, yeah. even though it's fully metal jacketed or Teflon coated or whatever, I just don't see it going through the plate metal of a bucket on a bulldozer. May I have your lighter? My my, my lighter. Your lighter. <laughs> <laughs> Sending the suicidal detective fresh out of the drug unit up to the jumper. Yeah, that's a problem. I mean, so two detectives show up on the scene because the crisis negotiator, the person, the psychologist, crisis negotiator, whoever that's going to go up and talk to the guy. (laughs) So to talk him off the building, two detectives show up and the uniforms just say, oh, detective. Okay, we got a detective sergeant here. Head on. Yeah, what are you going to do? What are you do uh you know what i'll send the guy that i just got back out of the drug unit who's proven via his actions that he's suicidal yeah across we'll send him up to the top now i can't yeah, think uh, that was the point of the scene you know across but, completely different scenarios over the right, last three days right has clearly depicted that he doesn't care about anybody including himself right so yeah we're not going to send him up first i don't think yeah. now i do agree with him <laughs> that he had something in common with the guy that was going to commit suicide he he could put himself in that situation but yeah, not real realistic. That rounds out most of our bads inside of this film. Again, this isn't a movie filled rife with bad stuff. There are some things, however, that we're going to get to inside of... Action-busting sequences. A single detective inside a crime scene. Yeah, I thought that was a little bit perhaps unrealistic. Although I like that scene. Like we said before, yeah. the scene where he was up in the mm-hmm. apartment... Mm-hmm. And he was looking down at the picture. I thought that was a good scene. Mm-hmm. Realistically, uh, and I don't know what the time frame was. Maybe that could explain it. But realistically, that looks like a fresh crime scene. You have no crime scene text. You have nobody collecting evidence and so forth. Not only that, so that, the, the, that, the, that the, the detective, right. as we've seen since the beginning of the movie, right. they would never take the detective and have him lay down on the floor and lean on the bed that clearly right. she and anybody else that was in the room would have used that evening. Right. The, that is a no-go. I can't. I cannot imagine a detective saying, I think I'm going to lay down on the floor here and lean against the bed. Well, especially later on when they mention, yeah. they come back and they say, hey, somebody else was in the bed with her. That was a piece of evidence. Uh, these days, absolutely not. You know, we're, we're looking for DNA evidence and so forth, trace evidence. Good point. I don't think that even back then, I don't think that that would have been standard yeah. protocol. Yeah. It's a small one, but it's definitely there. Welcome, Mr. Psycho Cop, to the Detective Corps. We yeah. glanced in this a little bit inside a previous point. But right. I think what everybody has to remember is that if a police department ever, ever detected that somebody was psycho slash suicidal slash I care about nothing, including me. They would not then be assigned to, one, the lead detective, right. the, the eldest detective that's going to be retiring soon, right. and that he would be assigned as a detective again instantly. I just well, I don't right. see it. Even, even before that, you have, you have so many things. You have him coming out of this drug unit, and mm, mm. you have 
I mean, you have these actions, these actions that depict that he is psychologically on the edge. Edge, you have a psychologist saying, hey, he's going to hurt somebody. You're going to get sued. This is liability. Now, back then in that day, uh, back in the 80s, perhaps PTSD wasn't, you know, looked at, and perhaps the command staff did blow it off or whatnot, but it was so prevalent in this situation, it was so over the top that I don't see them taking somebody back out of the unit, not putting him through some kind of transition, mm-hmm. and uh, but just, hey, look, pack your stuff up. Get everything out of the uh, drug unit. Okay, I know that Hook you just the new yeah, partner, yeah you you know you just shot three people. You uh, almost uh, got killed. The guy had yanked the, the guy the, off the, the building. Right, you yanked the guy off the building. You're you're in the you're in the detective bureau. Here you go. Here's your new partner. That's it. I'll just let the cop, the the veteran detective, handle you and straighten you out. You know now maybe that's happened back in the day. I I don't know, but um, probably a stretch. The stealth helicopter. Yeah, that thing guys, just came out of nowhere, right? Yeah, you guys thought that the 90s is when stealth technology started. Right. It, it wasn't. Mm-hmm. It was uh, the early, probably 70s, where mm. helicopters can be within 35 feet of you and make no sound whatsoever. Yeah. Because that's what we get inside of what is, without question, one of the hallmark scenes of this film. Right. Where Mr. Joshua, inside of a helicopter with a pilot, pops out of absolutely nowhere pops right up Riggs didn't even without hear him ninja rigs slash army right. super duper sniper heightened senses guy right would pick up i don't know maybe a helicopter <laughs> thinking <laughs> just maybe maybe but he doesn't and right. the reason is because there is no such thing as a stealth helicopter right for anybody that's been anywhere near a helicopter even if it's just landing at a hospital pad it's loud it's beyond loud and right. it is it, it the ones that are landing at a at a a helicopter pad, they're actually running a little bit softer than usual. Right. So imagine a full bore raising up as fast as humanly possible helicopter, the sound it would make. It's just, it's deafening. Right. Absolutely deafening. The bathroom scene. Yeah. This is a horrifying scene that everyone should be horrified by. <laughs> we, uh, yeah, we touched on it at the, in the beginning. No, you touched on it. Yeah, well, I didn't touch anything. Well, Thank you. But uh, Happy birthday, Chris. Right. Uh, yeah, is just, that bubble I, bath? What is that? And and I it I agree with putting this scene in there. I thought it for I thought action it really, busting. I thought yes. it really. No, Absolutely. I mean I I, I think yeah. it rounded out. No, I mean for yeah. them to put it in the movie to round out the type of family that they have that they're close knit <laughs> and so on and so forth. But come on, I mean, hey, let's let's throw it out. Let's you, throw it out to our audience. Hold so. on, you get in the duty room on Monday morning <laughs> and just take a take a quick question of everybody. Yeah. Hey, everybody, there's a new Lethal Weapon series coming out. And I just have a quick question: How many of you this weekend were in the tub where your kids and your wife and your wife, all right. of them, came into the bathroom with while the you cake. were in the bathroom with, right, with the cake? With the cake, I forgot about that. Yeah. And then began <clears throat> singing you Happy Birthday. Yeah. Probably not high on the chart. I yeah. don't think. Now, there's probably somebody out there that that, that has happened to. I'm not saying that. And uh, and, and that's fine. On the ragged and that's fine. That's yeah. all right. But uh, but yeah. definitely not 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 something that needs to go by without being mentioned. No. The rating. Inside of every Two Guys Talking property, including WhatCopsWatch.com, we always get to the rating. The scale works thusly. 10 is the best. Super duper. Cannot be matched. 1, on the other hand, bottom of the chart. Everything starts at a 7. Numbers go up with positives. The numbers go down with negatives. And Chris, there are no halvesies. Chris, what have you got? 
I got to give this movie a solid nine. It is one of my favorite movies. And, uh, Wait a there, second. I thought it was your favorite movie. It's one of the favorite movies. <sighs> That's it. Shut it down. Shut, shut, <laughs> shut it down. I've watched more than one movie. Oh, okay. Believe it or not. All right. <laughs> but uh i thought you were just watching 35 years of this film that's all i watch <laughs> over and over and over but yeah i give it a solid nine I, I, and what's your big ticket item for why my well it's changed i know I mean, and that's why so we're doing ni- ni- 19, 19 years old my big ticket item for why was this was just a great action movie and i was watching all of them back then you remember all the old the old terminator arnold schwarzenegger all the action movies i just loved them back then as a kid mm-hmm. Uh, these days, it's the big ticket item is after 25 years of law enforcement, I go back and I rewatch that. Also, as a father and a parent, mm-hmm. I have all these different perspectives that come into play, and I appreciate the things that they added in there yeah. to yeah. try to make that reality, bridge that reality gap with myself, with that experience as a father and parent, but also with that law enforcement experience mm-hmm. and the PTSD back at the time. You know, in that type of law enforcement era, and to rope that into the plot that they did, I just I thought it was great writing, and I thought it was great acting. Those two actors were fantastic, and the dynamic between those two, I don't know if anybody has come close to recreating that. They probably have. There's probably other movies that are that they have that great dynamic, but this has got to be up there at the top with uh, the character dynamic between Glover and Gibson. Uh, to chime in on that, I don't think so. Okay. I really don't think so. Maybe Han Solo and Chewbacca? I mean, seriously. how? Who else can you put on a scale of Danny Glover, Mel Gibson? Oh, you disagree with maybe there's other there's other movies that have the dynamic? No. No, I don't think that there You're are You're saying that there are no other dynamic no? movies. I don't, no, I, I don't think that there are any other dynamic relationships that equal that. In fact, okay. my question to you is, name them. Well, those dynamic movies, the reason I said perhaps is because I haven't seen those movies. Yeah. So I I, I really don't think that there is. If you and your experience who've seen way more movies than I have (laughs) will have to give me the example. But what I'm saying is this is the top dynamic of two characters. There, I can't think of another movie where I would put that in the same scope. Yeah, this feature film that everybody – Wants to shove it into a genre will say this is a buddy cop movie. Yeah. And I don't agree with that. We both we both right. don't agree with that. But what this also started very much like Die Hard. So it was Die uh, – there was the original Die Hard. And then there were thousands of other movies where, oh, yeah, that's Die Hard on a boat. Or right. that's Die Hard in an right. alley. Or right. that's Die Hard to Parachutes, whatever it was. Then you had this film very right. much in, in exactly the same vein where you go, oh, yeah, yeah, that movie that's Lethal Weapon in a blah. Mm-hmm. Or that's lethal weapon with blah. But what you never had was another dynamic that equals inside of lethal weapon with Danny Glover and Mel Gibson. Right. I, I really believe that. I think that it's it was it right. continues to pioneer. Right. Anybody that's never seen something that is like lethal weapon and you see lethal weapon, you see the reason why there is a genre of films called the buddy cop movies. Now, the ones that are jackass, hilarity, comedy stuff, I have absolutely no use for. But the ones that are trying to emulate that, Tango and Cash was another sample. Mm-hmm. Very much the same uh, time frame. Right. That one drifts over into the hilarity slash jackassery that I don't have any interest in. Mm-hmm. But this started it, and right. I don't think anything else has equaled it, which actually leads me perfectly into my rating. The, the, the value of this movie is 
that it provides you with what was back then a completely original flavor. There is super thick writing that goes on inside of this. The mm-hmm. storytelling is off the chart. There are questions that you want to ask about every single character inside of it, mm-hmm. whether it's the good guys or the bad guys. Right. Name me another movie that does that. Right. Not too many out there. The other thing you've got is that there are real messages in here, but they're couched inside of great writing, great storytelling, and the addition of humor. Right. And so you're not beat over the head with, oh, yeah, PTSD is terrible inside of police officers and people right. returning from war. You get all of that messaging, but it is not blunt trauma on the head with a PR24 classic. Right. And I so appreciate that because it is missing inside of today's, especially feature filmmaking. Right. And it's because everybody's got to get hit with a message. No, you don't. You need to be entertained. You need to be guided through some really good storytelling. And then you get out. You pull the ripcord and you're done. And that's what this film does for anybody that watches it, especially for the first time. Right. I also give Lethal Weapon a 9. And I don't give it a 10 just because I know that there's something else. And you know what? There's not, though. There is nothing else inside this genre that I would give a higher score. And so I give Lethal Weapon a 10. That's where we ask you guys, what did you think of 1987's Lethal Weapon starring Danny Glover and Mel Gibson? I'm getting too old for this podcasting. Let us know what you think by going to our Facebook presence. That's over at facebook.com forward slash two guys talking. Start a new thread there or chime in on one of the ones that already exists and let us know what you think. The franchise. A lot of people are completely unaware of this television show that's coming out this year, 2016. Called Lethal Weapon, starring Damon Wayans and a dude you and I have no idea what his name is. Right. And well, there are four previous feature films that you can go back to for reference inside of the realm of Martin Riggs and Roger Murtaugh. Right. We have no idea where this is going. Right. One of the things that struck me when listening to you, a 25-plus year law enforcement veteran, while watching the trailer is, they might be able to do this. Well, they and, might be able to do and this. I agree with you. I <clears throat> that, agree here, because of what you said. So this might be interesting, but but here's the problem. Trying to mimic the dynamic, trying to I mean, you don't have Danny Glover and you don't have Mel Gibson. Right. And trying to mimic that dynamic is gonna be hard. Super hard. So if Super hard. if people go into it with the expectation that the two, the, the Damon Waynes and, and the other actor are going to be able to mimic, and I'm not taking anything away from those guys. They, you know, they might do a fantastic job. In fact, the trailer looked interesting to me, mm-hmm. but them trying to mimic that performance is going to be, it's almost going to be impossible. It's going to be hard. Maybe they can do it. I don't know if anybody could do that except Danny Glover and Mel Gibson. Yeah. And I think that saving grace might be that with any luck at all, we are not going to see where the local hot dog vendor happens to be Danny Glover. And the guy selling Christmas trees in L.A. down the street is going to be Mel Gibson now. Let's hope we're not going to get any of that because I can't – that drives me crazy. The most recent semblance of Ghostbusters is a perfect sample of that. Did you really need to have any of the original people inside of it? The answer is absolutely not. So I agree with you. I am – the, the other comments that you shared during our watching of the trailer gives me at least some hope. Well, it does me too because what I what I anticipated going into the trailer from what I had heard was they're trying to make this more into a – what I thought. They were trying to make this into more of a comedy where this wasn't uh, – Lethal Weapon was not a comedy. No. It was a drama. Yes. But what I've seen was 
there are some there are significant dramatic scenes that they and some real in-depth scenes it looks like mm-hmm. real in-depth character development where they go back into the traumatized past of Martin Riggs and I like that that will keep me interested mm-hmm. if it's over the top comedy if it's all comedy relief it won't right it'll fail you know you and i are in the exact same boat there the instant that the new television series becomes the yuck yuck let's watch goofy damon wayans for 18 of 28 minutes inside of an episode right i'm it's ripcord i'm gone i'm absolutely out of that i have no interest in that if it is this series of ongoing stories that helps us catapult back to what martin has gone through and how we can help reveal his humanity with the help of this sage cop right. that maybe every now and then cracks a joke. Right. I think I can maybe get on board with that. But that was that was Roger Murtaugh's character. Yes. That was that was Danny Glover's character. Danny Glover's and, character was not a comedian. Right. And I think that I think that both of you and I were in for the trailer until right. about what eighty five percent through, and yeah. then it turned into yuckety yuck Damon Wayans. Yeah. I'm not interested. I'm totally uninterested in want, in somehow needing to associate. Whatever Damon Wayans is going to give us as comedy inside of Lethal Weapon, anything. Well, he, th- he totally needs to he needs to take a serious role in this. That I mean, it's not him; it's whoever's writing this. They yeah. need to yeah. they need to give him the basis of a serious role and add the comedy. We know he can be funny, yeah, and yeah. add the comedy relief. You know, pepper it in there. That's what they did in the movie. If they want success, I think that's where they got to go. Yeah, yeah. And that's where we actually ask you guys, what do you guys foresee inside of the realm of what's coming up for Lethal Weapon? I guess we're going to have to register you as a lethal podcaster. Let us know what you think by going over to whatcopswatch.com. Click anywhere on the right-hand side on the contact button. Fill out the quick web form and tell us what you think. So until next time, I'm Mike Wilkerson, one of your hosts. And I'm Chris Giuseppe, your other host. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. This is the end of your tour of duty. Another episode of What Cops Watch has been filed in records. But another scene is taking shape. So many dirtbags, so little time. Check back again soon to whatcopswatch.com and join us back in the squad room for your next assignment. Don't be late. This isn't a request. Are you a cop? You want to tell us about what you watch and why? Contact us by visiting whatcopswatch.com. There you can interact with us on Facebook and Twitter, subscribe to us via iTunes, and get regular briefings directly from your duty sergeant. Thanks for listening, and remember, after your tour of duty, hang up your duty belt, grab some coffee, kick back in that recliner, and listen to the next episode of whatcopswatch.com.